0: Resistance. In existence, join the resistance. Come on, let's start by talking tactics. Let's have a part match some Here's how we practice. The lost art of conversation. David Jason.
1: Hey, everybody, welcome to Pop Culture Continuum. This is John Elliott. And this is Patrick Riccardi. And this week we have a special guest. Uh, internet sensation <laughs> is that the is that the appropriate term internet no
2: i i think i'm a curse on the internet i'm a, a scourge
1: <laughs> uh, anyway paul myers
2: yay
1: as well as uh author musician all around uh, renaissance
2: man I, 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 The term I use on my business cards for a while there was media content creator, which sounds very Bowie, doesn't it?
1: it that's that's very <laughs> Bowie. I wanted to get into that when we talk about Bowie too, but uh, we've got plenty of time. Who were you giving these business cards to? Just
2: anybody? Oh, just passersby, you know. Yeah. I'm mostly clowns. I gave them the, the clowns. No, actually, this was actually for real, if you want to know. Uh, I, uh, I, Because I realized when I started writing magazine articles, but sometimes I would be talking to someone at a party and they'd say – They need some theme music for a cartoon they're doing or uh, short interstitial music or they might need me to um, show up on their radio thing to talk about pop culture. I just figured what I was making was media content because it was also at a time when Silicon Valley, there was people in the valley here who were uh, making you know, code. They're writing code, or they're creating like web startups. And so, my role in all of that was I was a content guy. You know, so it actually makes a lot of sense. So it's not just a tribute to Marshall McLuhan. It's actually a very functional, <laughs> functional title.
1: Yeah, that's how that's how things are in this day and age. It's kind of like a consultant. I don't know. I I mean, yeah. I could be a consultant. I guess I could put that on business cards. Yeah. No.
2: Um, you should. You should actually. It's. It, you'd be surprised how far we can go with these things.
0: Eh,
3: I don't
2: really want to. <laughs> Work.
3: <laughs> are you you unhappy having a business card is that what you're against you want to carry little pieces of paper around
1: yeah i just don't want people to bother me basically is what it is there you go figure it out for yourself you put that on a
2: card actually <laughs> don't bother Don't bother
1: me. me
3: number unlisted name unlisted
1: picture of yeah. george harrison on it um exactly yeah so well this week we are talking about david bowie uh in keeping with our ostensible uh The goal of this podcast is to compare something old and something new. We're going to discuss Station to Station and uh, Black Star, the new album. But really, I think it's just going to be a celebration of David Bowie Um, and Alan Rickman. Why not? Throw him in there. (laughs) John McClane from the Die Hard movies and uh, Dumbledore from the Larry Potter series of films and books. Um But no, David Bowie and I knew Paul. You were a huge David Bowie fan. Yes, probably the biggest David David Bowie fan I knew. So I, I you I figured you'd be perfect to be on the
2: podcast. Oh, did, yeah.
3: Paul, have you ever? Did you ever meet David Bowie? No.
2: I I I. The funny thing is, I keep having this memory of being in the same room with him, but I don't know if it's true or not. Like, because that's the the nature of Bowie is he permeates your. uh your psyche when you're when you're spending a lot of time with David's work, and he, we call him David like we know him. Um, and uh, I do know that um, somebody I know met him, and and they confirmed that he was tiny, like as quite often the case. Like you know, and I met Annie Lennox once, and she was re- about the same size as Bowie. And and I know what, how big Annie Lennox was. Like you know, basically Annie Lennox is just a little bit taller than the Oscar statue at the Academy Awards. So so, but these people because they're so slim. And but they're also short. They look really like they look like they're huge because the you know the television just doesn't have any perspective, you know. Um, but uh so I, I never met Bowie. I've heard so many people who like I talked to a lot of people who've met him a lot. Like I interviewed Niall Rogers a few years ago, and he, you know, they all speak of him the same way. It's like it's not just that they worked with David Bowie, it's that they were in the David Bowie axis of the universe, you know. <laughs> and of course Tony Visconti on Facebook is very approachable. I mean, he might be he might be a little inundated this week, but um, Tony and I have talked a lot privately about the margins of things. Like I, I recently rediscovered uh, Number One Outside and I I told him how much I loved it and how much I missed it kind of when it first came out. I didn't quite get it. And he said, yeah, he he had the same feeling, which is hilarious. Like, you know, that he had the same, like he'd liked it, but he didn't really feel like he'd warmed to his own, Like you know, he'd worked on that record. So it's like, so that's interesting to me when people, you know, Uh, Can I just also ramble on a little bit about one thing, which is I'm a journalist, you know, mainly it's how I make most of my living. And the reason I'm a music journalist, I was just telling my wife this the other day that it's because I love the idea that you can access these people with a uh, reasonable reason to talk about them, which is them. And, uh, but you can ask them, you can play, it's like you read a magazine and you don't have the remote for that magazine, but when you're the journalist, you can say, you know what, this, this interview needs this question right now and I'm going (laughs) to ask it and I'm going to get the information from the guy himself. And, uh, you know, of course I wish I'd interviewed David Bowie, although that would, his interviews were just theater. They, they were never, he never told you anything he didn't want to tell you. And he spent most of the time charming you, you know, which I, 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 I would love to have been charmed by him, but yeah. Or. Or yeah.
1: pushing, uh, pushing his own agenda, which uh, I, I think you posted on Facebook, Paul, but uh, like his interview on MTV about them not oh, playing yeah. black music, that was awesome.
2: <clears throat> Amazing, right? When you see that he... Um, you know, much like Colbert speaking truth to power at the Washington press court dinner a few years ago, uh, you know, but I mean, if Colbert, if, if Bowie had done what Colbert did, it would have been charming, uh, more charming overtly and more people would have went, Oh, that was so good. But instead <laughs> like Col- Colbert didn't have the bowieness to pull it off. I love Colbert's thing. Don't get me wrong. But I mean, but Bowie can speak to the temple of MTV about how apartheid they were and have them scramble and dance to try and come up with a, suitable answer which they didn't
1: Yeah no and it was great to watch because he wasn't antagonistic or aggressive no. with it. He he like you said he was charming but yeah. he
3: made the point. And yeah. he didn't back down even at the end when the the VJ is like do you understand or do you uh do you get my point? He's like, I understand your point.
2: Understand. <laughs> yeah he said I understand what you're trying to say. Yeah.
3: But you're wrong. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. I
3: felt a little bit bad for the the interviewer in that in that case not not that bad but it's like he's not the person who's who's putting this stuff together yeah frankly. but at, at the same time he didn't have to defend it so vociferously he could have said you're right but he did he defended it and it was really
2: it weird. was the com the company line yeah yeah
1: well yeah i mean you know if you if you're workers don't get excused from necessarily from uh following their employers shitty attitudes um I, I know you, you got to keep your job, but, you know, I mean, he was a, he was a part of it. The the VJ was a, a part of it. I'm sure he had we're some speaking, to say. We're
2: speaking about Mark Goodman, by the way, if, if anyone hasn't seen this clip. You should look it up. Mark Goodman on MTV 1983, was it? Four? Probably, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. probably 83. I'm imagining one stands. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was actually, I felt the same with uh, one outside. Um, I came to really late. Actually, a lot of the... The '90s Bowie, I didn't come to until later because, for me, after after Let's Dance, he kind of floundered a bit in the in the '80s, um, and and with Tin Machine and stuff. Like, I listened to it all, but it, it it's kind of where I dropped off. So then he actually came back in the '90s, in in a pretty big way. When you go back and listen to it, um, '90s and 2000s, um, but but I think people were were just done with him by then and, and it didn't get any of the uh attention it probably should have
2: i uh, i saw the tour with david bowie and uh i actually can't remember what era this was um uh uh, uh nine inch nails tour what, what year was that i could look it up i guess 1942 but, uh, i believe it was 1942 it was the, yeah. one of the first talkies right yeah and uh um no but it was at the skydome in toronto and i just quick anecdote about this uh, I don't know if you guys know who Naomi Klein is, but she's a... Yeah, the uh, writer. Yeah, she's a pop... But she's also like a politics and pop culture intersection kind of person, mainly towards the politics, but she speaks about the media. And so her and her husband, Avi um, Lewis, it, they're both uh, activists in Canada, and they're they're very well-respected. I was living in Toronto, and I took my friend Kurt... Uh, I had a press pass to sit in a very good section for the Skydome to see this Nine Inch Nails Bowie tour, and... Um, we were there and they were beside us. So it was like a very fascinating sort of to, to watch Bowie in real time do this transition from nine, the Nine Inch Nails set. I don't know if you know this tour for people who are listening, but they they never they never cleared the stage. They just uh, morphed the stage. So it would start off with uh, Trent Reznor doing his set with his band. And then he invites David up to do, um, I think they did Boys Keep Swinging and uh, something from Low. And then, and then, then Trent leaves. And by that point, some of Bowie's band have already snuck onto the stage and are playing along anyway. So then eventually Bowie just starts singing his set and there's no nine inch nails people left. So it was one continuous show, which to me was genius on so many levels. It was Bowie claiming the new while Trent could, you know, you know, benefit from having the anointment of the, of the the master. And the whole thing was just brilliantly. And the set, the set was very uh, stark and industrial uh, the lighting and uh and but but the thing that I wanted to say was so we've had this wonderful intellectual conversation. I mean fake intellectual, but we were having fun. and um there was a dude behind me, drunk guy with a you know the guy, He's in every show in the world. uh he's like a denim jacket with uh Ziggy Stardust written in felt marker behind his uh, on his back and and uh and he's screaming Ziggy and of course he didn't play Ziggy on that tour. Where do you play fucking Ziggy Stardust? you know like and it was like and we were all like, I don't know if you've ever if you've ever been stared down by Naomi Klein. It was really it was fascinating. Like, and we were all kind of thinking, you know, you know how it is with drunk assholes. You can't, you can't, be, you know, you can't uh, put out fire with gasoline, to use a an apropos expression. So I didn't know what to do. So we just kind of let him burn himself out. But he never did. And then somebody, I think, either decked him or pulled him away. It was a hilar- hilarious moment. Like his buddy basically pulled him out, said like, Come on, man, let's go for a walk. It was like, and everybody <laughs> applauded. <laughs> but you know, while Bowie was on stage singing, uh, um, the Port of Amsterdam, the uh, you know, that I think it's a Jacques Brel song. Um, uh, I mean, this is where my surface knowledge kicks in, but um, but anyway, it was to me that was a fascinating moment to witness, um, uh, you know, post 70s, post 80s Bowie, uh, in his glory, and also he was singing so well, like he just got better and better as a singer,
3: yes, definitely.
2: So- that, that. I'll stop rambling now.
3: I think that story is a good summation of, of Bowie, though. It's like it, he brought everybody in. Like you look at Facebook after he died. It's it, I, I was shocked by how many groups of people were were mourning him. It wasn't just like big music people. It was it was all encompassing. Everybody had something to say about him. So it, it wasn't sure. just music snobs. It was everybody. So it's really interesting because you don't when you think about Debbie Bowie concert, you don't think about the the guy screaming for a certain song, but he has that too he had that too. Oh it's yeah.
1: True. Yeah, he had he had everybody. I mean, even he was sampled a lot in hip hop like he he did soul back in the 70s. He's got he's got the entire rainbow coalition uh behind him. Everybody not everybody's a fan, but everybody has at least a song that they dig by Bowie. He's super respected. It's but it super. is
3: shocking how many fans he has. Not not shocking just to me just the the yeah, demographics is is unbelievable. It's yeah. staggering.
2: It's staggering, is what you mean. Yeah, uh, it's like it's it's a huge. Yeah, you're right. It cuts across all demographics, and you know, mom, because because he was so popular in the '70s in England, there's a lot of people's grandmothers who are Bowie fans because you know they first saw him on Top of the Pops in like '71 or something. Exactly. You know, yeah. you know. And it's amazing nice? to think that he's the same guy. I mean, <laughs> you know, the same, essentially the same guy. Although he did start saying he was David Jones a lot more. Uh, in interviews, I, and people would ask him how how was his New York life, and he, I think I read that he said, you know, for the most part, I'm Jonesy, and like that's what he said. I thought that was so cool that he said that, which was like he's he knows he's David Bowie, but when he goes to the chip shop, he's 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 Jonesy, and he or he buys the newspaper or he buys a new album he likes. You know, he gets excited about a new band, like you know. I think he, when he popped up with the Arcade Fire a few years ago, it was just because he happened to be like he'd been reading one of those you know, Mojo or classic rock magazine or uncut or something. And they, and they were, and he was like, Oh, who are these guys? I have to hear these guys, you know, <laughs> like, you know, cause he needed to be on him. Actually him and Elton John are kind of interesting that way. They're both huge. And, and let's throw all this Costello in there. They're both, uh, they're all of those guys are huge record nerds who made a huge body of work of their own, but they still, they still still comes down to them flipping through the, the racks at the record store um, and they still like want to know what 's going on you know they they always i mean Bowie obviously is now dead, but they they they're very curious people and that that made them that made their art better because of their curiosity
3: i didn 't know that about elton john that 's interesting
2: huge <laughs> record nerd
3: well the, the
1: elton john's an interesting person to bring up because I, I feel like um a lot of the those pre punk artists uh the big ones weren 't able to weather the 80s for whatever reason um, yeah yeah and and bowie's the only one i can think of i mean <laughs> uh tattoo use a good rolling stones album but i don't think anybody's really under the illusion that they've been making the uh, their top they've been at the top of their game since they weren't since pushing then. it
2: yeah they know the, the stones uh for god love them you know they have they have a great thing that they know how to do like but they didn't yeah they didn't push the envelope and reinvent themselves mainly cuz Keith let's face it doesn't want to do that that's not what Keith's in the business of doing Keith's in the business of com- continually grinding out that chord that he loves and it's yeah. and it, no one else plays it like Keith so like and by the way anyone listening I am so not dissing Keith Richards for saying that
1: I'm not dissing the Rolling Stones either no yeah well I mean Lemmy is the same is the same yeah. thing in my mind as as yeah. a Keith Richards yeah which what he did was great he did that one thing and um Anyway, RIP, but yeah, but yeah, uh, it's, it's really interesting that Bowie, like you said, was always, he was always into something new. I don't know. He, there was also that interview where he was uh, talking about in the nineties, how uh, hip hop was the only music that was doing anything, you know, daring or anything anymore. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Just amazing. And I I wanted to, before we even talk about this album, let's, uh, I wanted to, find out people's first like experience of Bowie or like your first real memory of of David Bowie. Paul. Okay, well I'll
2: start. Yeah, um uh I remember um I guess the Space Oddity uh Space Oddity became a hit single on AM radio, but I will tell you this. Uh my parents I had some older kids that I knew in the neighborhood when I was a kid, and so I'm old. I'm 55. I don't. I don't like to talk about it on the internet where everyone is 20, but um, but I'm 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 one of the seniors. Think of me as Doctor Zeus uh, I, I knew do. a time. I knew a time when ape did not kill ape. Uh, but um the uh, but um but my my parents bought um remember those cabinet stereo systems you know like the yeah so my i had had an am radio that didn't pick up fm and i'd been hearing so much about fm radio my parents bought this big stereo system or stereo cabinet and it had an fm button and it was like i mean this is part of a larger chunk i would do someday about fm radio being like the opening the basement and finding it packed with stars you know it was like and the stereo was much better sound so the first song I heard was the tail end of "Mellow Yellow." If I'm being honest, the story would be perfect if it was Bowie, but it was "Mellow Yellow" by Donovan. But I, I think I had heard it on AM radio before, but I'd never heard it in like in glorious, like full response, like or at least it seemed much higher frequency to me. It's like HD, you know. And then and then the next song was. Uh, Space Oddity, which what, they didn't pre-announce it, so it just you just hear that, and then the harmonics and the round control, and I was like, "Oh, what's this?" It scared the hell out of me. I was like, "Oh my god!" And then it didn't, it didn't go right to the chorus, you know, and then it changed a lot. It changed, uh, it and it, it had big moments of bursts out of the, what I later learned were mellotron strings and the stilo uh synthesizer and. And just uh, and, and a Mick Ronson, was that Mick Ronson? It was Mick Ronson, right, on the guitar? I don't know if he was oh, on that album. Actually, oh my god! But that, that that guitar that sounds very Mick Ronson-y, which I uh, I'm just immediately going to get in trouble for saying that. But it had that that kind of like uh, the, the 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 sort of like geek, 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 the, the little. Uh-huh. The little yeah, maybe it wasn't Ronson. I don't know. Someone will know and I'm I'm a fool now. But um but I was a kid, so I didn't know. So um so that scared the hell out of me and they said it was David Bowie. And I was like, Oh yeah, yeah, I heard something about him. And then that song actually crossed over later that summer, you know, to AM radio, and I I felt like I'd had ai had a preview of it. And I was telling all the other kids, I said, Oh yeah, this is David Bowie, he's like really cool. You know, and then and then I, I don't remember what the next one after that was, but I do know that I was lucky that it was that it was uh space oddity that I first heard because it it in many ways that's a through line through all of his work space and I mean there's you know there's uh, major tom uh you know uh, uh at the very end in the black star video you know, the, the at the very beginning of the black star video there's a dead astronaut on the moon you know or mars probably whatever planet again people have probably an- analyzed it more than I have but the idea that you know this astronaut character traveling through the space of not necessarily real space, you know, not necessarily celestial space, but he's definitely exploring and pushing this like, you know, crazy world of envelopes of reverb. And, and anyway, so that was a great intro to um, the playful, the playful mystery of David Bowie. Like it was playful too, because he was talking about, you know, space oddity. It's a joke that the space odyssey, it's like, it's a punny pun. It's a punny pun. It's not like a very serious song about space, you know. And that's the thing about Bowie. Again, I'm rambling. But the the thing about Bowie is, is like, he did it, like, that was his charm again. Like, everything was done with a a bit of a wink and a smile. But it was also, like, by the way, I've read this incredible piece of art over here or this dance piece that I saw. But I'm going to do this sort of pop culture version of it that's just as interesting but uh, palatable. You know, it's, like, it's chewed up for you. Like, it's pre-cut. You know, you can have... You can have this version of it now, you know, that's all right. And, uh, yeah. Go
1: ahead. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I thinking about Bowie this week, I, I kind of was was coming to the same kind of conclusion about him because um, I to me, I feel I don't know. You know, there's there's like the the line that everybody says, you know, oh, he was a chameleon. Um, uh, yeah, we know. I get it. Mom, yeah, 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 stop calling me up at 2 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> uh, with your Bowie stories, mom, and, and give me a mortgage payment. But, but I think what he did was um, he took Andy Warhol's thing one step further and did it better because he saw the bullshit of modern life and he turned the bullshit into art. Like he he made fun of it while at the same time celebrating it. And, yes. And um, it's just amazing, really, when you when you think about how he managed to do that and people you know people say oh he was he was using personas and he was uh singing through filters and stuff but even for all that there's real emotion in his songs um i i don't even know how i can't think of anybody else who's managed to do that
2: uh and, quick, quick quick note uh, i looked it up it's mick wayne who played lead guitar on uh on uh space oddity
3: mick Just wayne
2: say, the mick great wayne. mick wayne N- now hey, you gonna uh,
3: email and complain
2: yeah, you know, go. we're going to pretend that whoever was yelling at this podcast got the message through.
3: Oh, nobody's listening.
1: Don't worry.
2: Um, okay, well, they will be now.
1: <laughs> my uh, my first weirdly, the first memory I have is Bowie was probably around seventy eight. <laughs> I would have been like eight years old, and it's weird. I'm like I feel like I must have heard like Changes or Ziggy Stardust or something before then, but I remember um, that that my song was Drive In Saturday that really hit me. Wow. for whatever reason um, maybe you know maybe Happy Days and Sean and Ah were on TV then and I was like oh this sounds kind of 50s-ish so it uh, it hit me but Drive-In Saturday which has a weird emotional resonance for me even though I don't really know what the hell he's saying in it I mean I know the lyrics (laughs) but I I still have no idea what he's saying but uh, that's my first memory of a song that of his of his that that hit me Uh, Pat what do you
3: got? I would say I mean musically I, it's something from that best stuff because I didn't really get into David Bowie till the 90s when I was like freshman in high school but David Bowie himself is definitely Labyrinth. That came out in 86 I was like 12 and I was already obsessed with Henson seeing all the Muppet stuff and then Dark Crystal came out in like 81 or 82 and then so I was excited about Labyrinth because I loved Dark Crystal and I I remember going to the movies and just it's a great movie. So that's my first non-music introduction to David Bowie. But musically, it was in the 90s when I got the – just Changes. When he had, I forget when that came out, but I got that when it I Changes came
2: 1. Out. It changes 1, Bowie, or Changes 2? Yeah. Changes 2. Oh, I, I didn't know
3: there was – I just, I just remember getting the CD.
2: No, because I will say that Changes 1 and Young Americans, I think, were the first albums in our house. My brother Peter, who's always been a my older brother, very big source of uh, – uh, a lot of things in my life. Peter is the guy who brought in Led Zeppelin's records. He's the guy who brought in Elvis Costello and Talking Heads records into our house. So he's just a little older and just like seemed to always... He always seemed to like... And sometimes Peter would like stuff that I didn't get yet. Like uh, I think when Elvis Costello first brought in the house, I looked at the guy with the geeky glasses and I said, I said Peter, come on, man. You're embarrassing the team. <laughs> and, then, and then we listened to it all that summer and I went, oh, okay, he's right. You know, like, <laughs> And then, but uh, so the, in in the case of Bowie, he brought in young Americans and changes. Like, he bought them. I guess they were one had come out around the time of the other. And, uh, and I just remember, yeah, we so we got that whole back catalog, you know, like right away. So, changes and the song changes and changes. Like, the first time I knew that he was a genius composer was changes. And then years later, I think the other genius moment was life on Mars. The chord progression and melody of life on Mars is is beyond any, like, it's up there with, like, the you know, the great pop composers like Burt Bacharach. It's like, it's so, it's so amazing. Like, I love a good melody that climbs and moves around, then, then chords just happen to be there like, um, okay, I make dumb analogies, but there's a famous, there's a series, a Bugs Bunny cartoon where he's sleepwalking on a construction site, and he's walking over uh, some girders, and he's about to fall over, but then all of a sudden a crane goes by with another girder on it, and he walks onto that girder, and it takes him to the next level. That's what Bowie does with chords. He moves chords in out of nowhere that support this melody. Where's the melody going? Where's the melody going? Oh, he's going to go off the cliff. Oh, look, the girder just showed up. And it's <laughs> like, and that that to me is all my favorite, like, composer pop songwriters are the guys who do that. You know, Andy Partridge does it sometimes. Um, and Dave Peter Gabriel has done it. You know, by the way, the Gabriel analogy is interesting because I, I also think, as much as I love Peter Gabriel, he... He always—you could always feel him trying to be like Bowie. <laughs> you, could also yeah. feel him try, you could always feel him trying to be like. Oh, now I'm going to be a little bit. He's an intellectual who's trying to do what Bowie does intuitively. Yeah.
1: Right. Right. You know,
2: and and I love Peter Gabriel. Right. Like it's like I think Peter Gabriel's great. He, his music's got me through so many things, and and you know, but I think I think the Bowie just was so seamless about it, and because it was intuitive, maybe, I don't know.
1: Yeah, Peter Gabriel, if you're listening, no slam on you.
2: Oh, no slam on him. Uh, I will say, and we're going to get to talking about Black Star in a minute. But um, there's a moment in the, a couple of moments in the in the Black Star album that I thought this is what Gabriel would do. You know, um, okay. yeah, and I'll talk about that in a minute when, when it's time to talk about that.
3: But. Yeah, let's. Uh, I, I guess we should get into Wait, the albums before, before we move on. I just want to talk a little bit about the. You're talking about David Bowie as being a chameleon or whatever. But what really struck me, everyone talking about him, is how much David Bowie. He's a genius, and everyone agrees on that. But he also would not be afraid to call himself a genius, and he really reminds me of uh, self-promoters of the 40s, like uh, Salvador Dali or H.G. Mm-hmm. Wells, where yeah. they were they're absolute geniuses, but they were the first to tell you that as well. And I think that's that, that's something that you don't see as much nowadays. That was really prominent 40 or 50 years ago, and I, I I think it's pretty awesome. Well, I think
0: yeah,
1: I think the the media landscape's so different now with the internet and everything. Like back then, yeah, he he manipulated it to his advantage like nobody really was doing back then mm-hmm. i don't know how he managed to do it but yeah and you just you just even think about like all the persona he you know you, you had uh ziggy stardust and the star child and the thin white duke and uh the goblin king and jar jar binks and steve avery El <laughs> he,
2: <laughs> he was great as steve avery yeah I B- Binks got him into a lot of trouble, though. I remember that. It,
1: a- yeah, but that was a low period for him. He's
2: all I right. I remember. Th- I remember the NME's one sentence review was a uh, misa so no lo- misa so no dot like new Bowie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, can I just mention something? Uh, I mentioned this on Facebook. Uh, I never, I never saw Labyrinth. I've never seen it, and I wasn't interested in seeing it. Um, I felt like, for me, not to diss your love of it, but for me, it was like, oh, David. You know, <laughs>
1: yeah,
2: and, and then over the years, I, it became an aid signifier too. Like it's like if somebody, if somebody's memories of uh you know a certain thing, they go, oh yeah, for me it was Labyrinth, and I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying it's like, oh yeah, see, I never really, I was already kind of moving on, uh, but uh, but and that was also during a period where I was just waiting for him to make more original music, and I don't think he was. I think around that time, I'm not sure what he was doing actually. I just remember I had my reasons for not being as interested in Labyrinth. And also, um, it reminds me of the fact that I'm a huge Paul McCartney fan, and I've never had the guts to watch. Give my regards to Broad Street. Oh no, me either. So to me, to me, Labyrinth. I'm sure Labyrinth is a better film, but because uh, <laughs> because you got Henson and Lucas. But um, I mean, let's put it this way: I'm going to watch Labyrinth now. I, I'm not. I wasn't going to for a long time, and I forgot about it. And now I know. So again, you know, to the handful of people who might be listening to this, I I promise I will I will watch it you know you heard it here first yeah and of course young young jennifer connelly young so, jennifer connelly so, so cute anyway um all right let's
1: let's talk station to station quickly um I, which when i when i picked this i just wanted to pick a, a 70s bowie album and i thought this one was kind of underrated but uh it's uh, pat and i were talking uh off air about this it's it's strange how many parallels there are between these two albums um
3: yeah, I honestly thought you did it on purpose because they're so they're similar in a lot of different ways, I thought.
1: Yeah, and and uh, the song that I I picked to uh to do a a clip of is is the title song Station to Station, which like the first song on Black Star is a 10-minute song. It's true. And uh it's it's basically riding a groove although there is a change, you know, it's like Black Star, it's it starts out one way and then it's got a chorus that's it's another thing, but to be able to, to sustain a 10 minute song for a pop audience is, is pretty uh, phenomenal. Um, and, and I don't really have a lot to say about it, but, but I've always loved this, this album. Uh, you guys got any thoughts on this song before I throw it in? Uh, it's you, a great, go, uh, yeah, you it's first.
3: A, it's a great song to listen in headphones.
2: Yeah. I, 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 I thought it was um, at the time. I remember thinking it was really exciting that it had this dramatic build-up. And the whole train motif, and uh, um, I can't remember now because my thoughts are a mess about whether whether I knew uh, the, the craftwork sort of influences, uh, even though it's more of a soul record. Not it's not really a German sounding record, but um, but I remember uh, I, I remember feeling like there was a feeling that you know it was very European. Yes, you know, sort of like Trans Europe Express, uh, which might come after it. Actually, I'm, again, this would be a great show for Wikipedia to, to to be open in front of me for, which it isn't. But um, in fact, I'm I'm you can hear me opening it now, trying to figure that out. But. Yeah, I
1: mean, if only there was some way to look this stuff up, it would be
2: a lot easier. But that's, I, that's,
3: I, I'm pretty sure they canceled Wikipedia on the 15th anniversary, so we're out of luck for that.
2: Yeah. Oh, there you go. So many- well, uh, just as well. So, but station to station, yeah, very much the uh, the the uh, the feeling of uh, there was an event going on in that world, uh, and like so many Bowie moments, it it was uh, clear the decks. You don't listen to it casually, you right. know a lot, a lot of music you can put on the background, or at least other people can put on the background. I, I'm somebody who can't have something really good, exciting on the foreground and not stop everything to listen to it. So,
1: yeah, it forces you
2: to engage exactly which is you know why yeah like it's probably one of the best compliments to to anyone's work is that it made you stop what you were doing but uh continue
1: yeah well here well let's just let's play a clip here is uh station to station I believe chronologically on the album next is your pick, Pat.
3: It's I just picked it because I've heard it so many times. Golden Years. Yeah. It's I mean it, it's not just because I heard it so it's a great song too. It is a
1: great song. Everybody knows this one, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole album's great, I should say, from start to
3: finish. Oh yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, I I remember hearing that song. Uh, uh, I think it was the radio, probably yeah, and it was such a. It was so neat to think of this guy who I'd, I'd been thinking of him as a spaceman and being kind of like a rock guy who was more European. But Golden Years was so undeniably funky and and just really uh, groovy. And it just, it totally, uh, if I'm not mistaken, this is the one he did on, on Soul Train too, right? Which again was that thing of um, Bowie, yeah. Bowie smashing the apartheid of being a rock star. And I don't think he, you know, the, it, people always like to say, I don't see race. I don't think he I don't think he like I don't think he saw race the way people would see race I think he obviously acknowledged it and respected it because it's like his he loved a lot of black music and he loved you know a lot of his musicians over the years were just happened to be black musicians like many of his bands were filled with you know pieces of people of color on um, various uh pieces that he did and um it just uh, to me that was like that's the seamlessness of him, of him incorporating all of his influences. Like who knows what he was thinking of at the time when he wrote it, but by the time it came out, it was it was just undeniably funky. You know? Yeah. Well, from no.
3: what I read, he doesn't know what he was thinking of at the time he wrote it. Well, because that's another all thing. That, yeah. All that cocaine, sure. Yeah. Uh,
1: <laughs> but true. you know, that's if if you're a young aspiring artist, that's that's a a lesson for you. Uh, take lots of cocaine. It, well, yeah, but you absolutely. have to get the 70s, the 70s cocaine. Good that, cocaine the, from the I 70s, think, I think, yeah.
2: yeah, look up Merck cocaine. I think that was, uh, I'm not sure if they, if they had it then, but yeah. But, uh, you know, and that's, you know, George Murray and Dennis Davis, um, uh, I believe, were the guys on that. And th- those are the, the musicians that played on a lot of the funkier stuff from that era. And uh, um, they were just, you know, the bass player, George Murray, and the drummer, Dennis Davis. Undersung heroes, right? Like, those guys played on so many great records with Bowie. And you don't hear people going, "Oh, I'm a huge Dennis Davis fan." Outside of drummers, you know, right, like
1: no, yeah.
0: <laughs>
2: you know, and and you know, people wouldn't know George Murray's name in you know in the post office, You're like if you right. Excuse me, Do you know who I am? I'm George Murray. Like, Who's that? And of course, <laughs> Earl Slick. Earl Slick plays on that, and and, and of course, Carlos Alomar. Another Carlos like, Alomar. He's an undeniable huge part of the Bowie Funk, right? Like he, you know, the the riff on Fame and all that stuff, like which is you know appropriated from James Brown, but. But Carlos Alomar really brought the the funk and brought the you know that clicky rhythm guitar stuff to it that was just so so what defined that Bowie era and incidentally was the reason Nile Rodgers um, um, contacted David Bowie's that they they lived in the same apartment um, Carlos Alomar I think lived in the same apartment as Nile Rodgers in New York City and they were talking about getting in touch with Bowie or something like that it was yeah. some kind of thing like that
1: yeah I re- I just read that this week um, yeah and I, I think maybe non musicians don't maybe don't fully appreciate uh, how hard it is to get a funk groove like this going like rock rock people can't do this it's a, it's a whole different skill yeah um, people who just play rock yeah it's it's really impressive um, let's let's listen even though everybody knows it here's golden years golden.
0: Summon these ways and it won't be long Gonna drive back down where you once belonged In the back of a dream car, twenty foot long Don't cry my sweet, don't break my heart Doing all right, you gotta get smart Wish upon wish one day upon day I believe all law, I believe all the way Run for the shadows Run for the shadows Run for the shadows in these golden You hear you say lights taking you nowhere I can't up the baby
1: All you picked what I would have picked.
2: Uh... Oh, before you say that, I just want to say that you know uh, we so seldom hear great whistling over funk tracks as <laughs> that as that last
1: track. <laughs> no, that's uh, true. I seriously, I I would
2: often go to the elevator. <laughs> you know, I can't do it, of course. Uh, but yes, I did pick. Um, I picked. A, go ahead, or shall I say it? Yeah, no, TBC, you say it. TBC one five, and for various reasons, this to me typifies um, the period of like when you know. I'm a I'm a Marshall McLuhan fan, uh, media study guy. Like I I, I was a huge uh, I was always interested in the media and how the media manipulates things and how you know and uh, David Cronenberg's video drone and uh, and uh, the Tubes did an album called Remote Control around this time, which is about you know people committing suicide on television and stuff and and many of those themes of course are still being talked about and the internet just blew it up even further because you know the internet is like TV in your you know, in your phone, um, and, uh, and, and which they couldn't have predicted. Well, they, some people were predicting it, but nobody could have really grasped it, you know, and McLuhan was talking about this stuff years ago. So when I heard like the, the whole theme of TBC one five, I was just like, uh, or TBC 15, depending on how you say it, but I know he sings one five. Um, just, it just, it, again, it was one of those songs that just, uh, spoke to a time for me and, and the time being, of course, 76. Um, but, um. I guess that's America's bicentennial time too, which is very interesting. <laughs> um, but um, you know, and just uh, you know, again with the uh, oh, Roy Batan, of course, that's what I was going to say. So he, you know, he thinks I want to get I want to get a Bruce Springsteen kind of vibe on this thing on the piano. So who do I get? Oh, I'll get Roy Batan from Bruce Springsteen's band, <laughs> and it, that all worked out. You know, there's that connection between Springsteen and Bowie that um, is coming out now more because you know he he recorded uh, a couple of springsteen songs over his career and and springsteen this week just did rebel rebel in concert um you know a tribute told a story about going to visit him in philadelphia while he was making uh, young americans and uh so anyway so tvc 15 and i also remember i think if i'm not mistaken did he not perform this on snl yes of course it was uh that's what he did with klaus nomi of course yeah
1: the klaus yeah. nomi clip which everybody should look up as well yeah
2: apparently snl SNL's website. uh, If you watched uh, Saturday Night Live last night, Fred Armisen came on, did a little thing, a little short mention that if you go to the SNL website, they're showing all the Bowie clips from from they're featuring all the Bowie clips from that time. So that on 1979, though a few years later, he did uh, um, he did with Klaus Nomi and Joey Arias uh, doing uh, TVC One Five, and of course it's a perfect you know TV song to do on a live TV show and uh reminded me of when frank zappa did i am the slime from your video uh, uh on on saturday night live like again you know the appropriate song for the live tv moment but uh, that's all i need to say about it the rest is uh, the rest is in the track itself
1: yeah so, no i i love it uh, uh the piano to me it doesn't it doesn't evoke spring scene it evokes new orleans um yes and yet the the rest of the music does not it doesn't sound old-fashioned it's extremely new so it's another one that i, I just marvel at listening
2: well to. part of it is also those saxophones which david played himself you know the uh there's all these like slightly atonal saxophones and it brings a kind of a, 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 a guard yeah i yeah. hear your i hear your uh, mardi gras analogy there too but uh but uh just yeah and also the the whole um the party aspect of it reminds me a little bit of um uh, uh the mayhem of uh diamond dogs uh, you know, like when he just sort of like the the, the grooves pumping and he's on top of it going like, you know, was it she's my new creature feature like the, and he's just sort of like throwing these words out. And and like David's the great party man on top of this, like, you know, like I picture him on like, uh, you know, riding the the little levitating moon over Studio 54. And he's just <laughs> yelling, to, yelling these couplets like a courtier, uh, like a like a prince in an old movie, you know, like and everyone's like, oh, David, oh, David. And they're lapping it up with the cocaine. <laughs> and um, but, I mean, it's hard to separate the chemicals from the time, you know, because even Bowie spoke very eloquently about just how abusing he was in those days. But you, put it this way: you don't. If you take the drugs, if you or I take those drugs, we're not going to come up with something as brilliant as him. No, we're he dead. did it. He did it on the drugs, which made it even like to me. That's more. That's the way I look at all that stuff. Is like if you manage to be a junkie and still write amazing things, like William S. Burroughs. Uh, it's not the drugs that made you brilliant, it, but it's your brilliance that didn't let the drugs take that away. You know? uh, yeah, no, totally. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, any comment, Pat, or should I just play it? Just, just play it. All right, here we go. TVC 1-5. station to station i mean those were the three we picked but we could have picked any three and it would have been just as good Um, and
3: you you talked about tv TV tvc one five being like not feeling dated the whole cd could be brand new oh no totally Uh, yeah it's just it's
1: great i agree all right um you guys want to take a quick break and we'll come back and talk black star yeah sure all right we'll be right back
0: We had a comrade, a brave comrade, he could talk for whole days, but then he tried to be a hero, tried talking about Shamiro, to computers wearing earphones, he almost died for conversation, hallucination. The Reformation creation. the land of the Crations, and
1: right back to the start. It's gonna take some time and patience but all, the best all right, we're back with more Bowie all day, <laughs> all night. Uh, Black Star, his newest album, released days before he died. Two days. Two days. Um, yeah. If I mean, if if you're into specifi- specificity, it was two days well, before he died. It just blew my mind. That, it blew my mind that
2: like I had. Um, truth be known, a journalist friend had uh, actually made a recording of the vinyl for me on the Monday, and I had. But I had pre-bought. I had pre-ordered from iTunes the album that was going to be released. I guess Midnight Thursday. Yeah. You know. And um, so I didn't feel bad about bootlegging it. And I'm also a journalist, so I didn't. You know it, and I. And truth be known, I actually deleted the files after I got my official download because I just I I I don't know. I wanted to support David's. I wanted David to have the sale. I wanted yeah. To, I wanted it to be. And this is before he died, just so you know. So all of this is happening. So I was listening to midweek, uh, midweek last week. I was starting to like uh, get really excited because I was realizing that this this album, Black Star, was feeling really like a... Uh, I love the next day, for instance. I love the next day from three years ago, and I remember thinking, "Oh my God, this is the David I love." But then Black Star comes along, and I'm like, "Oh my God, now this is the David I love. This is the this is David challenging me, but then paying it off. Like when, you, like if you, if you go with him, much like you were saying about Station to Station, if you go with him on that long opening track, it might not get you the first minute, the first minute and a half, even. You might not even be like, oh, "Where is he going with this?" And then, and then it gets bigger and bigger. And then there's this part in the middle of the song Black Star. We can talk about this later. But I just – and you go, oh, no, he's taking me on a journey. And But, like, again, this was him going to that next place artistically and being in the moment and doing all the things that you liked about David Bowie without being nostalgic. And although there was nostalgia. I mean we can talk we – we're going to talk about this, right? So just yeah, – I'll leave it there. I'll leave yeah, it there.
1: there is nostalgia, but it's also – it also feels brand new, and I love The Next Day, too. And I, I remember um, I, I looked it up after uh, after this album came out, and it seemed like it got just kind of middling reviews, which is surprising to me because I remember when it came out, I was, like, flabbergasted by it. I was like, this is awesome. I never would have expected this from Bowie
2: Yeah, at this no, late the, date. The, well, The Next Day had, like, a couple of uh, – for one thing – uh, again, the great theatrical moments in, that he always knew how to do. Like he knew how to play the media. Like you know, add that to his his resume of instruments. You know, guitar, guitar, piano, uh, saxophone, and media. You know, like because I mean, the guy's a master player of the media. So when he released the next day on his own birthday, after having not released anything for many years, and then the opening song is a slow dirge about walking in Berlin. You know where are we now? And he's singing in his what I call his old Bowie voice, like older man, and like you know, where are we now? Well, very 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 creaky, and and he's being very sentimental. But it, it was actually truly moving. I not going to lie, I cried when I heard where are we now because it it was about me as well. It was like. It was me going, oh my God, David, we've been around. We've been through this, man. Like, I remember listening to Low and I remember listening to Heroes and I remember feeling like Low was an album that only I understood because a lot of my friends didn't get it. And I was like, I was like, I could listen to side two of Low all day, you know? And it was like, and I, I remember thinking Lowe was one of those litmus tests you know so when he said, where are we now?" and he's talking about Berlin I was thinking, yeah like where are we now it reminds me just a little bit of this John Lennon clip where he's when John Lennon was coming back in the 80s uh, just before the 80s and before he died he, he said Sorry. something yeah no exactly it was like and he's talking about how oh I'm just back you know to make new music you know didn't the 70s suck? How are you doing How'd you get through it? And he said that, and I'm like, oh my god, yeah, John Lennon, you've been there the whole time too, you've been watching this shit too, and like suddenly you're going back and saying let's let's compare notes about the last decade, and now Bowie's doing Where Are We Now, going like, let's sum up where we are now, you know, let's find ourselves on the map of Berlin. And um, and um, that was so brilliant to me, that he did that, and that he spoke to us, so I did cry because it was a very mournful song, or I guess mournful is not the word, it was wistful. Wistful, wistful. yeah. That's yeah, the word, yeah. Melancholic a bit,
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I really loved that album, but yeah, this, this album is, is another level really. And he, he used uh like kind of avant-garde jazz musicians, I guess on this, but you, it's not jazz
2: music. I I don't think anybody would mistake it for that, but no, there's jazzy elements for sure, but the the guys play in a really rock way. Right. But
1: like for this kind of music, it makes sense. Like you want, you want jazz musicians who can basically do anything. You don't want, Mick Ronson, no offense, you know what I mean, or or the Rock guys uh, playing on this album mm-hmm. for for what Bowie's doing, it's it's uh, it's perfect. Again, he's always been great at picking musicians.
2: Can I just say something interesting though? Uh, before he died, I was reading an article in Mojo magazine, which I bought on David's birthday. I happened to be walking in Berkeley, and I saw um, The New Mojo had David Bowie on the cover, and I was like, oh my god, it's his birthday, the new album just came out, I'm having the best day, this is going to be a great week. And <laughs> and I go home and I read this interview with D- Tony Visconti, and he's talking about how uh, Ben Monder, the guitar player on the new album, didn't know, he didn't know um, uh, Starman, he didn't know Mick Ronson's work, and and and, and he said, and he said something like, We uh, asked him to go listen to some Mick Ronson, and he, he had to go study it, and you know, and then and then there's a point at the end of one of the songs where I hear um um something that sounded like Robert Fripp at the end of I Can't Give Everything Away off the new album. There's this thing that sounds just like what Robert Fripp would do, the same tone, the same trills. And it occurred to me later that the conversation he was mentioning about Ben Monder not knowing Mick Ronson, I will bet that on this Black Star album, Bowie purposely every so often dropped a few uh, shout outs like so now I need you to play like Mick Ronson on the outro of uh, what's the song Uh, uh, what's the song there's a part where it goes it's very Mick Ronson and that's got to be the one that they were talking about in this this Visconti article and at the end of I can't give everything away there's this like really frippish guitar and I feel like what they were asking Ben Monder to do who is genius but he's a really great guitar player um, I feel like they're asking him to make little nods to these other things from David's discography, and that makes this album, of course, a planned uh, live elegy or whatever you call it, like a living will. The album's yeah. a living will. I've never said that before. That's actually true. It's it's a, my living will.
3: No, it's it's, it's it's go ahead, Pat. It's amazing that Bowie was able to do that. Like being so as sick as he was, have have everything together <laughs> to put this together as a goodbye. Yeah. I think it's. It's yeah. it's something only he could do really.
2: Yeah, and I think he started it in from what I understand, late twenty fourteen he was writing the songs, and I think they tracked it really early twenty fifteen. So I don't know how incapacitated he was towards the last, you know, months of the release. Although there's an article that I've yet to read. I like I have Bowie fatigue in terms of articles because there's too many <laughs> there's too many links going around, and I also have other things I'm supposed to be working on. And it's like uh, good luck. Right. Like, uh, but um, I just want to give a shout out to so Donnie McCaslin's saxophone work on this record. Like I said to someone recently that he he gets um, he gets such a prominence on this. Like he apparently had a credibility in the jazz world already as an up and coming guy. But this does for him what Let's Dance did for Stevie Ray Vaughn. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, have you guys heard this guy? And he puts him on the rock stage and everyone goes, oh, my God, Donnie McCaslin's really great. And then, you know, it's his parting gift to Donnie McCaslin, basically, you know?
1: Yeah. No, no, it, that's awesome. Yeah. Stevie Ray Vaughan. Uh, I was thinking about that the other day, too, because um, I, <laughs> I had actually forgotten that Stevie Ray Vaughan was on Let's Dance um, until reading all the Bowie stuff this week. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah it, I was also thinking the, the song Let's Dance. <coughs> Is a really weird hit single. It's, yeah, it doesn't sound it doesn't sound like super pop. I, I don't know. It's it's awesome that that was a hit single for. Well,
2: me. I think that the thing that came up. Uh, and sorry, Patrick, I've, <laughs> I'm jumping in all the time. Um, the the thing that came up, I thought uh, when Let's Dance was a hit, was it was so prominently. I would read that you know now Ni- Rodgers is going to be producing the new Bowie record, and I'm like, whoa, what's that going to sound like? You know, and then the first thing I hear is that the guitar going like, dang, 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 dank Dang it dang dang dang, and it's like, oh my god, that is such a Nile Rogers chic guitar. <laughs> so I remember thinking that's kind of what made it pop. Actually, was that it, that he prominently featured like the you know good times guitar player, you know, like. So I think that was probably, you know, that and the fact that it had, um, the uh, the if you say run, I'll run with you was it was kind of like it was it was so uh, elegant. It was yeah, big. that's it was true. Like, yeah,
3: is Nile Rogers the producer that Bowie said. He's the only guy he would allow it to sing a song where he starts off by sing, like saying something. He it's, starts it's, off he a song with the chorus, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Now Rogers
2: from Chic. Oh, so w- w- oh, because that's the song that starts with the chorus.
1: Yeah, let's dance.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. I, mean, I also, when you mentioned about saying something at the front, at the beginning of uh, Modern Love, Bowie says, you know, I know when to go out, I know when to stay in and get things done. Right, you know, like <laughs> which again, get things done. Isn't that what Bowie <laughs> did his whole career? <laughs> He knew when to stay in and get things done. Like, like, like I just love that. I mean, I, and that's another thing we could say about Bowie is that, just as an artist. I mean, I I used to feel like you weren't allowed to call yourself an artist, you know. And it's definitely a misused term sometimes. And there's a lot of dilettantes saying they're artists and not doing anything. But I I'm happy to call myself an artist. And one of the reasons is that I when you make art, you're an artist. And 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 but it's also you know it's a job. It's not a title. It's a job. And making art isn't something that you do by calling yourself an artist. You know, it's like, and and, and I I don't know if I'm making myself clear, but my point is that Bowie showed me a time and time again, that it's okay to be proud of being an artist, but you got to work at it. Put the work in. Yeah. yeah. And if you're working at it, there's no worry about your ego tripping, because you're not ego tripping. You're serving the art, man. It's not about your ego at that point. And and, and I, I think that Bowie had a huge ego, but I don't think he had a, dangerous ego i mean no i never i never knew him personally so i didn't never i never got screwed over by anything that he ever did but i don't know (laughs) i doubt he did no
1: well from all accounts he was a pretty (coughs) nice guy yeah Um, yeah
3: there's that this is not anything to do with him being a nice guy or not but there's that weird thing he did where he sold stock of himself
2: oh yeah well yes he he was broke and so he, Oh, is that he, why that happened? Yeah, oh, so I, he okay. created uh he created the Bowie Bank uh, and I I actually wrote a jeering article about this for a Canadian uh small circulation magazine years ago and uh at the time I was sort of making fun of the, how he'd sold stocks in Bowie, you know. Oh, it was the um I made a, a mock commercial for the Bowie uh the Bowie American Express card or the Bowie Visa card, okay. you know, like you know, with Bowie, Cod, you know, you know, like when it, when when your situation changes, you can. Do that. It was like it was like really <laughs> dumb because I was really kind of mad at him at the time. But the, what I later learned, and my wife and I were just talking about this, is that he, he had he marketed himself out of bankruptcy to become uh, very wealthy again. Like he had lost a lot of money. You know, he was a cocaine addict, and he you know lived beyond his means and wasn't necessarily always producing the hits that Let's Dance were. Uh, you know, and then um, somehow managed to do this thing where it also made the fans pay for it. Like he made the fans, he reached out to the fans in a way that uh, has become kind of the norm. Like Prince and and uh, to some extent Todd Rundgren do this too, uh, which is like you have the a direct relationship uh, with your fans, so they become your patrons and and uh, and in the case of Bowie, like he had such a broad fan base that he was able to bring himself out of debt you know and bypass the record companies, you
1: know? yeah, yeah, I, I mean looking back, he was ahead of the curve yet again
2: again, yeah, it's
3: like a uh, a proto kickstarter,
2: yes, exactly, well he was he was it was exactly it was very much the the uh the the, the crowdsourcing for sure fan sourcing I call it actually, that's the term I've used, but yeah. Uh, Can I just say uh, a joke that came to mind recently is, uh, you know that show called Shark Tank?
1: (laughs) Yes, I haven't seen it, but I know what it is, yeah.
2: Okay, so basically a bunch of successful businessmen uh, and women sit on a a panel and people, uh, inventors come with uh, proposals for things that they need venture capital for. And it's a game show, kind of, but it's a serious thing, and they actually do get money from these, these investors who are all successful business people like Mark Cuban and... Uh, Kevin O'Leary, who I've only ever heard of from that show, but apparently he's very successful. Um, and so I had this idea when I heard that Bowie was so brilliant with getting his business in order, I actually thought it'd be a hilarious sketched to, to see Bowie on Shark Tank as one of the judges. You know, just <laughs> David, I. David, I've, I've invented an egg slicer that blah, blah, blah. And David's going, well, I'm not really in this space. I don't really know. Uh, does this do – have you got a patent for this? Because I'm not going to invest in something without a patent, man. You know, like I just – but anyway, it, again, the joke requires you know both those things. So there's two people out there listening to this podcast who would know that joke. But anyway. anyway yeah, please, man, let's move on. Let's continue talking about Blackstar, though.
1: D- yeah, David Bowie would be more – I've got my own egg slicer named Jeeves. I don't yes, know what exactly. You're
2: yeah, about. exactly. Um, Imon, yes, Iman slices them for me. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Black <laughs> Star, um, uh, uh, man, what a way to go out. Um, yeah, it. Like you said, I think maybe it's well, it's another <clears> one <throat> that it requires your attention. Like it's you can't listen to it as background music, but it sinks in. It it gets under your skin the more and more you listen to it, and. And then especially after he died and knowing everything that happened afterwards, it takes on an ev- even more special resonance, I think. Um, but it's not – I love the idea that this could be his first number one U.S. album because it would be the weirdest number one album in the history of the world.
2: Yeah. No, I mean, okay, so the idea that he knew uh, – he knew – and like Lazarus is a – like song song has got all these great lines about you know him – uh, you know, up, look up here, I'm in heaven, you know, and 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 all the uh, all the things like skeletons on my shoes, he talks about at one point. Um, just a, and the whole uh, the whole Black Star song is is kind of about I don't know what you guys have chosen as your picks though, but um, that's
1: Pat's pick, yeah, Black Star. Well,
2: maybe we should go there first. Can I just say first before you go, Pat, is that why I mentioned Black Star as a as a thing Was it's, it's it's um, he he uh. He, he he talks about the, it could be, it could be God, you know, like the, who's the black star. And like, he says, I'm the great I am. You don't mean anything. I'm going to take your passport and your shoes. Like, like you don't need all those worldly things now. Cause you're coming with me. I'm, I'm going to take you home. He says, and it's like, i don't i'm not a god person i'm not a religious person but i understand the concept of going to meet your maker you know or going to the other place where those things these earthly things don't matter and that that can be a secular thing as well and i I just i just think that the knowledge of impending death is all over this record obviously i mean that's the that's like the the big black elephant in the room you know but patrick you talk
3: well not about the specific song but i do wonder if people have the power to keep themselves alive just long enough to see something happen like the Bowie, we have the just <laughs> the, you just want to stay alive for this album to come out or yeah. Charles Soltz died when the last peanuts ran on it was last one he wrote ran so I just wonder if people when they're in this state where they're yeah. on the end and they they know they're gonna die soon if they just just have the strength for that but anyway back to the song I picked this song. Mostly because it's a it's basically four or five songs in one. It's it's just go, it's, it's it's a ten minute song and it goes all over the place and it and it's four or five songs in one, but it is one piece and it's uh that's about it. Yeah, no, it doesn't sound like pastiche really, like it, it no, no, means like flow that.
1: Yeah. into each
2: other no, naturally. Especially, yeah, yeah, yeah. In the middle when it when that when that uh, ray of light comes in the middle when he says something happened on the day he died, the his spirit rose a meter and stepped aside, somebody was it somebody stepped Somebody jumped, took his place, and bravely cried, I'm a black star. Yeah. That, the music behind that is sweet. It's like sweet music. And it's very, uh, it's like a, it reminds me of progressive rock in a sense, too, where you could have, uh, like in a Genesis song or something, you'd have this one jam and all of a sudden this, this mellotron section would come in in the middle. And also, he, he uses synthesized strings on this, if I'm not mistaken. It sounds like but, it, yeah. Yeah. And, but I think he uses them as to represent what they are, which is like a, a synthesis of uh you know uh, a sound uh, like a texture from the past a little bit like a, a slightly uh, an, uh, archaic you yeah know? a little
1: new wave sounding yeah, yeah yeah
2: but just the way he said when he says something happened on the day he died his spirit rose a meter and stepped aside like it's it, it, it i mean before he died this was blowing my mind and then when he died i was like oh my god you know and then you know the whole screaming i'm a black star but you don't matter now you're not i'm not a star star and i'm gonna take you home and and also that section too when he goes into that like that sort of like old bowie kind of like um the similar sort of uh sort of carousing uh cabaret singer you know yes anyway i guess we should probably hear it right
1: yeah let's uh let's give a listen to black star here you go (laughs) And one last thing I want to say about Black Star was uh in the beginning, like the the verse, I guess you would call it the the first verse section, um yeah. there it's it's got a lot of uh, Middle Eastern flavor, which I always like and yeah. don't hear enough in pop music, I I feel like. But,
2: yeah, like uh, Secret Life of Arabia. Yes. Uh and s and Yassasin.
1: Yassasin, yeah. That's, yeah, that's so what like, I was thinking.
2: Like, I thought that too. Like, it's consistent. consistent theme in his work uh and even the the melody from um uh you know the return of the thin white duke throwing darts in lover's eyes yes that's a very middle eastern melody too you know yeah
1: a great song and and uh my my pick from this album was uh the the other obvious pick i think lazarus um it was like you, I pre-ordered the album. So I got black star and Lazarus before the album came out. Um, yeah, me too. Yeah. And, and so this was the second song I heard off of it, but it's just so, so clearly about his death. And, you know, when you, when you first hear it, it, it just seems like David Bowie's, you know, being going off on some Mooney lyrical thing, but now it, it, it's pretty concretely about him dying. And, uh, and it's a great song as well. Like another one, really musically adventurous, I think. And I don't know if this is the one you were talking about with the Ronson guitars at the end. Um, it, it does have some kind of rockish outro thing going on, but um, we've probably
2: all seen the video. Well, I just want to mention the video too because, uh, you know, much has been made. We're, we're, we're t- today we're talking about how station to station is kind of an analogy. Or an anal- analogous album to this one, and of course he's wearing in the video for for Lazarus, he's wearing the same striped suit that he wore on the back cover of Station to Station. So
1: yeah, the thin white Duke suit. Yeah,
2: and there's a reference to the Kabbalah, uh, you know, the Tree of Life, and there's a Tree of Life in the video, and um, so anyway, so it's kind of interesting. Um, also, he, in the video, he's writing, he's writing um he's writing letters and it looks like he's sort of getting his papers in order yes. and he goes, and then he goes into a closet or something. Right. Is that the video? Yeah. 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 yeah so, which is like, you know, heavy handed, I guess, but it's like, you literally going into a box. <laughs> um, but you know, wow. You know, how frightening is it? You know, like it's just, it's pretty frightening when you know, and you look at his face and he does look kind of gaunt and he's wearing, um, things wearing eyeliner. So his eyes look particularly, um, like a Gary, Gary Trudeau, doones, cartoon or something is just, just a little bit slit eyed, you know, it's just, it's very, uh, frightening. Yeah. It's it, just a little frightening
1: in, in a way. It, I mean, the thematically completely different, but in, in a way it reminds me of like Queens last videos where, where Freddie Mercury was obviously not, not doing well. Um, and he looked really thin and, and you're like, Oh shit, something's going on with this dude. Yeah. Um, but it, of course that's all in hindsight as well. Um, Speaking of Freddie Mercury, Under Pressure got to be one of the greatest songs of the 80s. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. The yeah. two
2: the two giants matching note, you know, belt for belt there, you know?
3: Yeah. Did I, you hear that someone took all the music out and just... Yeah, the had... acapella? Yeah. Or the, yeah. the, the,
2: the vocals? Yeah, yeah. Isolated, isolated vocals only mix, yeah. Yeah, it's great. Pretty amazing. Um,
1: well, let's listen to Lazarus. Uh, here you go.
0: stolen Everybody knows me now
2: Is when he says, "You know, I'll be free, just like that bluebird."
1: Bluebird, it's yeah, uh, it hits you right in the heart.
2: Uh, it's just and just just he actually does kind of like he's kind of like uh, his voice gets kind of hoarse a little bit when he says like, "You know, I'll be free." You know, like it's just like you know, like totally, uh, um, I don't know, yeah, just just it's really you know. By the time I got to New York, I was living like a king, then I used up all my money, and you know, he did go broke a couple of times, and. Also they love New York so much. I saw a recent article about that, and uh, you know New York became a very um, certainly was the place he died and, and, but it became a very important part in like several parts of his career. New York was a prominent location and you know, and just it's, it, he, he's such a, uh, an, Amer- a Britishman, an Englishman in New York, you know and so, so the whole thing is just, I don't know just very sad and beautiful. Have you guys
3: seen the picture of him? I think it's captioned Bowie in New York or something like that where – it's pretty recent and he's walking in. he's wearing like tennis shoes and cargo shorts. shorts cargo yeah. shorts yeah yeah. yeah yeah, he's carrying he, the uncut magazine and giving the paparazzi the finger
2: yeah he's like subtly giving them under the <laughs> yeah, table yeah very subtle and, to and, look and also twice. also the issue he's like you know you don't you don't carry magazines the way he was carrying it he's carrying it holding up the cover that says something about uh, 12 icons or something 100 icons You, you know, <laughs> and he's an icon himself and he's like yeah I see you there I see you there <laughs> and we should point out with the boy the kidder the prankster the Joker, uh, his turn on uh, extras. The Ricky Gervais. Oh, show. so
1: awesome! Yes,
2: I mean, I've never seen anyone make fun of his own persona as well as just being part of the other guy's joke, and and just he totally bowied up that song, you know, like uh, a yeah,
1: funny little you know, fat man. Yeah, funny little fat man.
2: No one's bloody laughing, you know. It's like, <laughs> Is just like and, and Gervais. Um, Gervais always do, did seem like a a chubbier Bowie to me a little bit, and <laughs> and to have that to have that moment of connection between the two of them. I'm sure Gervais is super. Uh, of all the accolades that Ricky Gervais has gotten, I think having that moment with Bowie on Extras is probably one of the biggest ones. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, so I chosen um, a song. So one of the first songs, like I said, when I got the advance, um, the secret advance. So I got Lazarus and Black Star, like everybody, for for downloading it. But then when I got my little uh, bootlegged advance, uh, which, uh, you know, thanks again to the journalist who just slipped that to me, Um, the first song I heard was, uh, well, the first song that jumped out at me that made me go, oh my God, this is really amazing was Girl Loves Me. Uh, Girl Loves Me uh, just was so, um, so uh, just, uh, it reminded me of Peter Gabriel. Uh, in a good way, Uh, just the way he breaks his voice at the end of uh, where, are we allowed to swear on this show? Yeah. I wasn't sure. Uh, So when he says, and I'm going to pull off the mic here, where the fuck did Monday go? Yeah. And he does that little thing at the end. I hope I did it well. You did. did For you, you, David. You can't see this, (laughs) but I'm I'm pointing to my heart. Um, But where the fuck did Monday go? And he just keeps saying it, and and. um Just that whole, and then the chorus is so Bowie, it's like, girl loves me. And then he's speaking the NADSAT language from Anthony Burgess's Clockwork Orange. and uh, and Which, to be honest, after listening to it for a week, I'm like, okay, I kind of wish the song's lyrics weren't uh, part of that sort of playful, sort of cut-up thing. I wish it was a little bit more of like a song that was a little more literal, but like, you know, David... David has the right to do that. Well, But just – yeah, go ahead.
1: I like – what I like about that is is—is it's him not giving a fuck at all. Yeah. Um, he's like, no, I like this language. <laughs> this is what I'm going to use. And I also love the idea of people on the subway singing Where the Fuck Did Monday Go? Well, there? I did.
2: I did. Like I was literally walking around with earbuds on. Two things happened to me last week. One was I, I was singing – I'm a black star, I'm a black star. And literally I mentioned this on Facebook and it's absolutely true that an African-American man looked up at me because you know how you don't know where you are when you have your earbuds on sometimes? And I was saying, I'm a black star. He probably thought that I was like, like completely deluded, uh, you know, because um, I'm clearly not even a white star. But uh, but uh, and the other one was, yeah, I was thinking where the fuck did Monday go as I was walking by a school the other day, you know. <laughs> Okay, mm-hmm. and a couple of things. The groove on it, the uh, the straight ahead groove. This band on this record, uh, Tim Lefebvre on bass, and uh, uh, the drummer. Uh, yeah, I thought I had it a minute ago, but um, the drummer is really good. I'm going to look him up, actually. Jasper um, Ju- Johns,
3: Mark yes. Giuliani?
2: Yes, Mark Giuliana, I think. Yeah, I think. I think you're right. Um, and uh, but the, the the way and that drummer is an amazing drummer, by the way. Like, and uh, I know that uh, Tony Visconti has said that. Um, that uh, Tim Lefave is uh, the best bass player they've had, uh, sort of, he didn't say since uh, uh, Tony Levin. And of course, he also mentioned himself because Tony Visconti played bass on a lot of things over the years. But, um, but definitely, he's one of the best bass players. And you might not think so because he's not athletic or anything. He's not like a show-off bass player. He's not Getty and Lee, yeah. He's not Getty Lee and he's not Chris Squire. And, uh, and, uh, and unlike Stanley Clark, you don't need a bass player to play under him. Um, uh, but, uh, the, uh, but the groove is so good. And that like a, and it's just, uh, and then just, the the, the harmonies and like, uh, just, it's, but just, again, you find yourself singing like, where the fuck did Monday go? And then the last thing I want to say is, of course he dies late Sunday night. And then you like, you're left thinking to yourself Sunday, where the fuck did Monday go? And like, I don't know if he planned that, which there is some talk of assisted suicide. I don't know. I don't want to be, I don't want to say, I, I wouldn't fault him if he did. Nope. And I, I, I'm I'm firmly on the side of if you're in a lot of suffering and if you do that, I don't want to start a rumor either. I have no way of knowing. Uh, all I know is his death was incredibly perfect in terms of uh, <laughs> maximum impact on the weekend. Uh <laughs> Like, and it was like, so where the, where the fuck did Monday go, man? Like, where the <laughs> fuck did Monday go? Anyway.
1: Yeah, it's a great song. Pat, you got any thoughts on it?
3: No, I think you guys <laughs> sent it up for you. <laughs> Sorry, Pat. <Yeah.
1: laughs> All right. Let's, yeah, no, let's take a listen.
3: Here
0: we go. <laughs> Split a dad from his den den, vidi vidi at the China. china.
1: That's it for the albums. Buy them both.
0: Actually, can, I just do,
2: can I just do one more? Where the fuck
0: did Monday go? <laughs> there you go. That
2: one. I, I wanted to get the little high yelp at the end there.
1: <laughs> no, it's yeah. I I love I love the whole thing. Um, I, I think probably the most uh the most David Bowie like classically David Bowie song on it is um I can't give everything away which is also also takes on special meaning, you know, after the yeah. death. Um, uh, but, which I, I read somewhere, I can't remember, it, it might have even been Pitchfork, I don't know why I read Pitchfork ever, but... What uh, the hell? I think, they, I think they said it was like the weakest song on the album, but I was like, well, that's... I, I don't think it is number one, but even if it is, it is, it's still stronger than the stuff you guys are giving 10 star reviews too. So it's
2: the weakest drum sound on the record. Uh, it's, I think, I think they used, uh, Bowie's demo drum machine program on it or something. Uh, I think, I, and I'm not sure if the drummer's playing in with it, but there's something very dated sounding about the drum machine, but everything else about it as, uh, was that the one I'm thinking Am I thinking of the right one? Oh man.
1: Yeah. I think you are. Cause drum machine sounds right for that one. Yeah. The last one on the album.
2: Yeah. And, uh, um, but, uh, uh, but 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 uh, but the thing about that uh, the harmonica callback from uh, New Career in a New Town from Low, the the harmonica line like,
0: wah, wah, wah,
2: like that that is that's from from uh, uh, Low one of the uh, pop songs the instrumental pop song from side one of Low, um, so that's a that's a little bit of a, a reference too. And also the, the traditionally the lonesome wail of a harmonica signifies a train going off in the distance. So. Yes. Which is brings us back to station to station a little bit, um, and just uh, yeah, uh, say uh, yeah, he I'm paraphrasing now, but is it saying more and meaning less. This is all yes. I ever meant. Uh, like he's basically saying, I, I just wanted to do this while I was here. I did all this, but I can't give everything away. And then part of it is like I can't give it up. I can't leave this. But also I'm not going to give you give you all the secrets. I'm not going to give you all, I'm not going to load all the clues. You're right, going to figure this you're gonna have to figure this shit out on your own.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a summing up of everything basically.
2: And- also um Dollar Days is another song that has the same wistful mood where he says uh, if I never see English Evergreens I'm running to uh it's nothing to me, it's nothing to see. You know, and then he says I'm dying to, but I'm dying to what? Like he's is I'm dying comma, T-O-O. like where right. it, it's like I'm I'm dying to. Like but he's saying I'm dying to I'm trying to And don't you ever think I've uh, forgotten you, you know? And it's like – it's definitely a letter maybe to Alexandria, his daughter, Lexi, um, which you didn't – to their credit, you didn't hear much about Lexi for the last few years. Like he's got a teenage daughter, you know? It's like – and Iman, you know? You never really hear anything about Iman and David, you know? I mean they lived in Switzerland for a while, but they they moved back to New York in the 90s, you know? So they've been around.
1: No, Um, it's it's admirable. I mean he's not feeding his publicist – Lines to give out to People Magazine or whatever, yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so I I think, yeah, I mean, there's just no getting around. Black Star is everything that Tony Visconti said it was, which is David's parting gift to the fans. Uh, It's, I, historically, I don't know of a precedent of somebody making such a brilliant testimony. Maybe authors do this. I there's probably, I'm not so big on the, I don't really know who does this, but I'm pretty sure there's got to be a few authors who have known they were dying and wrote uh, an amazing book or something. But yeah,
1: I mean the only thing even close that I can think of is Warren Zevon, maybe.
2: Um, yeah, yeah, when he went on Letterman and said, "Enjoy every sandwich." Yeah, but yeah, that, that was very much a moving thing to this day.
1: But ever, well, yeah this this was uh thanks for coming on, Paul. Actually, we before we leave uh. We Everybody go buy David Bowie albums. You are anyway, I think. Um, but uh, we well,
3: do... Well, how did we go through this long podcast without talking about his greatest work? Little Drummer Boy with Bing Crosby. Oh,
1: that's good way to go out. The the only version of that song I like, yeah. Um.
3: Peace on <laughs> <laughs> The greatest to see that is to see the beginning where they have the little skit before they sing. Yeah, yeah, I forget exactly. if, if Bing Crosby's going to David Bowie's house or David Bowie's going to Bing Crosby's house. Yeah, I do yeah, yeah. how the setup is, but they're, they're a little yeah. stilted conversation beforehand. And,
1: and Yeah, and right afterwards, uh, Bing Crosby puts him over his lap and gives him a hearty spanking.
3: And then he suddenly stops and says, oh, I thought you were my son. I'm sorry. I, I thought you were my daughter on Star Trek. To, oh, wait,
1: was that granddaughter? We never figured that
3: granddaughter. out. Granddaughter. Granddaughter. Tasha Yars' granddaughter.
2: Okay.
1: Um, so before we go, we do recommendations Asians, 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 Asians. So anything in pop culture, Paul, you got a uh, recommendation for us?
2: Oh, man. Uh, uh, film, uh, Animalisa, is, uh, I just saw it last night, um, Anomalisa.
1: Yeah, yeah Charlie, Charlie, Charlie yeah. Kaufman.
2: Charlie Kaufman and Duke Johnson. It's a stop frame, uh, single, you know, like a stop motion animation, um, kind of a puppet animation, but it they The lighting and cinematography make it look so human and so real, but there's never any doubt that they're puppets um, uh, or marionettes, I guess they call them. Um, And the subject matter is so, um, it's all about like disconnection, emotional detachment and um, denial and just the way people make clumsy bids for connection in the world. And uh, uh, just Charlie Kaufman, it reminded me how much I loved Adaptation. The whole idea of uh, just the existential sort of self-loathing that comes in, and the dread that comes in when, when you have these moments of realizing the loneliness of life. And having said that, it's uplifting because when you see someone talk about these things and celebrate these things, it makes you feel a little less alone yourself. Yes,
1: you realize it's it's a universal condition.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay to look at the blackness sometimes. So that's my recommendation. All right,
3: Pat. I think I I tried a new show, uh, Mr. Robot, that's gotten pretty good critical reviews. Now, I, I, going by the first episode, I agree with them. It's a show about a hacker, and it has an interesting look at at uh, society and greed and corporate greed, and and it, it's actually a, a, a pretty good depiction of hacking as far as that goes for television movies. So it's as far as the first episode, pretty good. Christian Slater's in it. Oh, there you go. Well, you had me at hello, buddy. Yeah, yeah, that's all I needed.
2: Uh, is there a, But it's about hackers. That means there's a scene where you hear a clicky keyboard and the guy goes, "Gentlemen, we're inside the system." <laughs> yeah, that's that's what it, it does. That stuff better than anything I've seen before. It doesn't try to make it into some. Gentlemen, kind of... we are now inside the Pentagon. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: I, do, no... I do hope there's a scene where they, um, where they, you know, have have some video footage and then they, uh, and then they expand it so that you can see the license plate, like like
2: uh yes. yeah yeah, that's, that's yeah a, without I any just, pixelization yes
3: exactly right but it's not what is it a zoom in zoom in closer what's the what closer, what closer, it closer closer <laughs> i want to see his
2: macro cell structure oh i know <laughs> it is enhance enhance yeah enhance, enhance, enhance. <laughs> Can I, I, love I love it, the movie where they actually had a moment where the guy says i can't go anymore like that because the actual camera didn't have enough pixels to pick that up <laughs> <laughs>
3: that, that will never happen yeah. <laughs> well, I think I saw something where there was something behind the door that they were able to, because to, there's a heat signature. Just remove the door. Let me see what it is.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's 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 great. Yeah. Looks like the guy died in 1974. Make him make him live to 75. Uh, okay. Okay. Good. So he was alive in 75. Good. I needed that. Yeah. Yeah. I,
1: I can't believe I'm not a Hollywood writer. Jesus Christ. I need to get on that. I need um, totally get on that, man. My recommendation is I shared it uh, on my Facebook page, uh, which does nothing for anybody listening. But uh, just <laughs> just go look it up, uh, Fred Rogers, Mister Rogers, uh, testifying before the Senate in 1969. It will brighten your day immeasurably.
2: I saw that; it was great.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's... And
3: when, an added layer is the history of it. It's so interesting how how really how short the life of PBS has been, and how much of the fact that it exists is because of, of, uh, Fred Rogers. Because that, of him. That's yeah. That speech got, got the government to give, to actually give money. And it kind of sucks that their people are talking about taking money away. And it's, it makes yeah. you sad that, uh, Sesame street mate got sold to HBO. I mean, it means the show can continue, but it still sucks. That it's not more of a public thing. Yeah. Well,
1: let's go fuck Khaleesi.
2: That's it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that's a good one. Uh, or, uh, you know, time is a flat circle. Uh, but, um, uh, <laughs> But, uh, but uh, the, the thing when he says uh, when Fred Rogers in that clip says uh, what was it what do I do with the, what do you do with the mad that you feel? Uh, is that what the line is the mad that you feel is Yeah it? I think so. What do you do with the mad that you feel And like he's so thank God he never turned out to be Jared from subway because he is such a great <laughs> communicator of children's uh, issues in a human adult way, but he talks he has smart adult ideas that are not. Uh, beyond the understanding of anyone. Like, right. he's, just, he, he's so good at communicating a simple message. Because one of the secrets, for instance, of the New Yorker for instance, magazine is New Yorker writes about heavy subjects in an in-depth way, but I don't know if you've ever noticed this, they don't use a lot of huge words. The New Yorker magazine is written in a way that you're supposed to be able to understand what they're writing about. Now you might not understand the concepts of, of everything they write about, but the true communication comes from being simple in language, getting across something heavier in the words right so so that's what fred rogers did fred yes. rogers was a gifted communicator of complex um socialization ideas with children and and people
3: yeah and it's just i think it's sold with 100 percent sincerity i mean Completely. nothing he said yeah. there was no subterfuge it was just what he was saying was exactly what he meant and yeah he was he was awesome and and pat
1: and i have spoken to that issue um, numerous times on this on this podcast of uh, there there are people who look down on uh, say uh, popular science writers or whatever or uh, people who popularize philosophy let's say you know uh, in uh, hard concepts to understand but they write it in a way that's accessible and I don't understand the the hate for that I think that that's the kind of thing it's harder to write for a general audience um, about about difficult subjects than it is for a, you know, uh, your peers for peer yeah, review. Because,
3: yeah, you need to figure out how to explain it where everybody knows. it, And I think that's it is very difficult. Yeah.
1: it's So anyway. Um, All right, Pat, do your uh, ending spiel and we'll get off.
3: Oh, if uh, write to us at popculturecontinuum at gmail.com if you have any comments, complaints or criticisms. But uh, don't write if it's something Paul did because he doesn't care. Uh, like us on Facebook. Rate us highly on iTunes, and most importantly, tell your friends.
1: Yeah, just rate us on iTunes. You don't have to write a review. Just give us some stars. Don't be fucking assholes. It takes not, we, We're nobodies. Uh, we know we're not. You know. I, I know Paul's probably gonna have some some friends listening to this, and they're gonna be like, "Oh, they're not funny like Scott Ackman." We know. You, you don't <laughs> need to point it out to us. Just <clears throat> don't say that. Yeah, just just give us some stars or or. At, at best, ignore us. Don't write us negative reviews. Um anyway.
3: Although uh, that's negative review is entitled Um what is it? Married with Morons. Maybe maybe it's okay. Yeah, somebody
2: didn't. Uh, but you should should point out that you're at, at at this point in the conversation we've been talking for over an hour. So if they've gotten this far, any any criticism that you just told them to not do, they probably already did.
1: Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's they true. probably
2: they probably yeah. They didn't <laughs> oh, started... they
1: made furiously typing while we were discussing uh,
2: the whole episode, more power to them
1: yeah, Um, well thank you very much Paul for coming on thanks for inviting me,
2: Uh, let's do it again sometime yeah, Yeah, this this was was awesome,
1: thanks so much and uh, until next time, goodbye everybody
2: goodbye bye
0: So